he has the biggest torso to arm ratio in MMA. He is all neck and torso. It's the ape index. Yeah. Point one. (laughs) Whatever part of the clay that God used to sculpt his torso, like 50% of that was supposed to go to his arms, and he just fucked that up. Come see the tights, watch how they fight with just everything. Their hands and feet and bows and knees. This is an art of boxing you would all love to learn. Hi guys, welcome to the Eight Limbs Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Wagner, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Saram Muraladaran. I did not pronounce that right, but whatever, let's just go with it. Nailed it in my opinion. <laughs> Close enough. So I've been out for like a couple months, um, and since I haven't done this podcast, Muay Thai has started up again. It was closed due to the pandemic. They've reopened Rajadamnern stadiums, and they're having a lot of shows at the smaller stadiums like Thanacorn and Omnoy. I think Lumpany's still closed right now. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that later, but I brought Shuram on to talk about the UFC fight and a fight of the year contender that recently happened in ACA, which we'll get to in a bit. And he's going to go over some of the recent K1 fights with me as well. So let's start with Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa. What were your overall impressions of the fight? What did you think of the way Costa approached Adesanya, Suram? Uh, I mean, it, it was kind of self-explanatorily bad, I think. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the reason that anyone picked Costa, including myself, I'm not gonna like you know pretend that I picked Izzy, even though it looks super obvious in retrospect. Uh, a lot of the reason that uh, I picked Costa was that uh, he was kind of too dumb to fail in that sort of <laughs> really uh, embarrassing way. Because uh, you know Costa's thing is just he he does his thing, and that's kind of what you can generally trust Paulo Costa to do even faced with someone like Yoel Romero. But uh, here he kind of did something completely different after, like, two kicks caught, which, uh, I mean, that that was not good. Uh, I think he watched the Yoel Romero fight and just kind of completely misinterpreted it. And honestly, uh, Costa doing tape is kind of the worst thing you can do if you're Paulo Costa because, like, the less information you give him, the better. Uh, it's, it's just he's, he started, he pretended that he was a thinker in this fight, and he's just not. He's not a problem solver. Uh, he, he's... He thought he was Aristotle when he was actually just a machine, and that, that would have done better for him. But a brilliant performance from Adesanya. Uh, he's growing more and more comfortable in the pocket with, he, with each fight. Um, I don't see anyone in middleweight who's going to give him too much trouble. I mean, as much as I love Robert Whitaker, uh, he looks like a more and more awful matchup for Whitaker every time I see him. Uh, so, I mean, uh, tough to say. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying about in regards to Paulo Costa being like, you would want him not to think. You want him to go out there and be Paulo Costa strategically, but with maybe with a couple tactical ideas to take to Izzy. But of all the stuff he did in that fight, being Paulo Costa was not really one of them. Um, like I know a lot of people have said that the stuff Izzy was doing prevented him from pressuring, and it did to some extent. But he he didn't really seem intent on making that happen. And I understand why he would fight that way strategically. Um, if he didn't think he could keep up a, a pressure game plan, uh, consistent pressure, swarming for five rounds. 
but I don't think I think he really dropped the ball tactically. The big thing for me is that if you're going to fight against type like that and you're going to consent to an outside fight, you need to not only be able to compete with them somehow in their range, but you need a way to force the fight into situations or exchanges that favor you. And I don't think Costa came prepared um, to deal with what Izzy was doing, and I don't think he really knew what that kind of fight would look like. Um, He didn't really have any tactical ideas on how to make that kind of game work. He tried to, to do the body kicks, to hurt him into the body kicks along the cage and cut him off with those, but he didn't really, he just kind of threw them. He did his usual thing without putting Izzy in the situations that those body kicks usually work. He wasn't pushing him to the cage, forcing him to move off, and then catching him with a body kick as he circled off. He was just kind of throwing them from range. And we really saw the difference between somebody who's a very willing kicker and fine at it for MMA and somebody who's a genuinely elite kicker. When Izzy kicked Costa, not only was his form super efficient and fast, really hard for Costa to read and defend in time, but he had setups. He would feign into them. Uh, he would use footwork to set them up, and he would move out off them. Like He would land a leg kick and then frame with his arms, sidestep diagonally so Costa couldn't return. When Costa did it, he didn't really set them up well, and his form was pretty inefficient. He'd take a massive step with his lead leg and then lumber his rear leg around like he's swinging a tree trunk and Izzy could read it every time. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever Costa tried to kick the open side, Izzy would have time to to see it coming and respond and he would just angle his body so it was so his um like his shoulder on the side the kick was coming from was in front. So the the kick kinda ran up his back instead of colliding with the the soft underbelly and he was able to catch and counter. Although I will say, when I rewatched the fight, Costa's kicks were actually a little bit more effective than I had thought at first. Uh, Izzy was catching and countering them, but Costa was still getting the better of the exchanges in which he landed a body kick. Like he would actually land a solid thudding body kick to the closed side, and then Izzy would throw a counter with a punch to the body, but it wasn't as strong as the kick. But I thought he, instead of just trying to do the kicks and then kind of getting dissuaded when they were countered, I would have really liked to see him start punching off the kicks. Uh, I made this comparison on Twitter, but I I brought up Sangmini and Talanchai, their second fight. In the first fight, Sangmini won out. Uh, Talanchai is a super slick outside kicker, and he was kicking Sangmini up. He was countering, catching and countering all of Sangmini's kicks, and I think he knocked him down with a head kick off a caught kick from Sangmini. In the second fight, instead of just trying to kick with him, Sangmini would throw the kicks and immediately step in with a right hand as soon as his foot planted down. So when Talanchai was trying to catch the kicks, uh, instead of being able to catch and counter, he would drop his hand to catch and then immediately get pelted with the right hand. And then the more that happened, the more he stopped trying to catch the kicks and the more Sangmini's kicks were working. So he had the dual threat of the kicks and punches working together. And Costa didn't really have any ideas to make those work. Um, I'm not too sure how he intended to close distance. I don't know if he he usually jabs quite a bit, and Izzy really shut that down um, with his hand fighting. So Izzy was right from the start employing foot and hand feints constantly to keep Costa at range and gather information on his reactions. And Costa Costa's reactions were mostly either giving ground in response to the face feints or trying to parry them, both of which left him open to the leg kicks. So once Izzy realized that Costa wasn't going to keep coming forward off his feints, he started putting leg kicks behind them. And those leg kicks took a toll really quick. They were really hard and fast, and 
as they were set up by his feints and footwork. Costa couldn't see them coming and mostly just ate them clean. Part of the, I think, why Costa felt the need to give ground in response to the feints was because he doesn't have too great of defense on the inside. Uh, so if he's in super close range, he has maybe one layer of defense before he has to start giving ground or he's going to get hit. Though I, I am kind of confused about why he was so willing to concede ground when Izzy hadn't really established the threat of his punches at all. It didn't seem like Izzy needed to actually hit Costa to get Costa really fearing his punches. So even when he was just flashing that jab in his face, even when the jab hadn't actually landed, Costa was still super super hesitant to come forward. Again, I don't know whether the game plan was to, to stay at range for a little bit and try to feel Izzy out, but... Like I said, I don't think he had the the tactical astuteness to make that kind of game work. But I was really, <clears throat> I was really impressed with the way Izzy fought. Not only the feints, but his footwork looked great. He was constantly moving laterally, L-stepping and sidestepping around, occasionally going into a square stance and changing direction. And he'd use those direction changes to bait out Costa's kicks. Uh, he'd hop into a square stance and then pretend to move left to get Costa kicking, and then slide out the right side. He shut down Costa's jab with his rear hand. He kept his rear hand extended for most of the fight to feel Costa's lead, and that that allowed him not to react so heavily to Costa's feints like he was, like Costa was to his, um, because he was standing mostly at kicking range, and if Costa tried to jab in, he would immediately feel that jab on his palm, so he could just keep his eyes open for the kicks and the rear hand, which, as they were at long distance, he had a lot of time to see those, so he kind of took away the threat of Costa's lead hand um, we saw Costa a couple times try to jab in from the outside. He wasn't really able to get anything done from uh, from like just outside the pocket because Izzy was constantly controlling that hand, and Izzy would just back away and create distance, and Costa couldn't really do much. When Whenever Costa took an angle to his lead side, Adesanya would control the lead hand and then switch into southpaw and kind of strafe out diagonally. So when Costa was trying to get around that hand fighting and try to take an angle to set up his rear hand or kicks is he would just slide out. There was a cool thing he did too um, at one point where he he like uh, he went into a square stance and controlled his hand and then kind of feinted a sidestep laterally to get Costa, uh, like I think he, it was a body kick, to get Costa kicking out of his body. And then he did it again, juke to the other side and tried to sidestep back. Costa went to kick where he thought Izzy would be, but instead of going to the side like he did before, Izzy just slid back diagonally. So there was a lot of cool footwork stuff like that. There were some cool setups for Adesanya's kicks. Uh, he was putting them behind side steps and L steps, so he'd circle around, get Costa turning into him, and kick when he planted his foot. There was one time where he used an oblique kick to force Costa to withdraw his leg. And then as soon as he stepped forward again and planted the leg back, he pelted it with a really hard leg kick. And then after just picking apart Costa for like seven minutes, eventually he kicked his leg to bits and Costa was having trouble moving at that point. And he was really hesitant reacting to the feints. And he got a little bit desperate and started entering with bigger punches. And Izzy just nailed him with a, a counter an overhand that kind of landed on his shoulder and knocked him off balance and then caught him with a left hook behind the ear and just killed him. Uh, so yeah, I agree that it. I'm not really sure what we were seeing from Costa there. I don't know what his game plan was, but I think that him and his team dropped the ball by not only by getting him to fight against type, but not really preparing him to fight that kind of fight. 
And I think there was some, like, Costa was not prepared at all to deal with a kicker like Izzy. Because I think most MMA guys, unless you train with elite kickboxers and or Nakmoys, you're not going to feel that kind of kicking efficiency and power at all. Like Costa was, I think he expected to be more competitive on the outside at kicking range. But Izzy, Izzy's kicking form was so much faster, so much more efficient. And with his setups, Costa just really had nothing for him there. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think the the trouble that I have with not just the tactics of Costa, which were non-existent, but the general strategic way that the fight went was that I think everyone before the fight pretty much figured that Costa's game was going to be a short one. Like um, his his game all the time is, especially given the Romero fight, was walk forward, go super, super hard for two rounds, hope the guy isn't super durable like Yo Romero, and then maybe fade late. Like he wasn't ever going to compete in a volume, slow-paced kickboxing match with Israel Adesanya. And I think we all saw that with, like, for example, how the Yoramero fight went in round three when he was, like, picked apart with jabs. Uh, even, like, some spots in the Hendricks fights where, like, Hendricks, he didn't really need a ton of uh, setups to, like, kick his leg. He could, uh, like, walk forward with a double left hand and then kick his leg on the way out. Like, the, there was a distinct lack of craft in what Costa did after whatever it is that his A game was. So I think what people expected, and myself included, was that he would be too dumb to change his approach for Israel Adesanya. He would be like, oh, Israel Adesanya, like, even before the fight, you're like, oh, he's skinny, fine, treat him like he's skinny, but just do your thing. And he treated him like a a ridiculous power puncher who he didn't want to get near while treating Yo Romero as the skinny one. So um, not particularly, because I I really do think, I think Costa looked at the Yo Romero fight, went... I beat Yo Romero. I'm better at Yo Romeroing than Yo Romero at everything. And he didn't see Yo Romero's A, incredible kicking defense in general. Like, Yo Romero's, for an MMA fighter, Yo Romero's very hard to kick. Also, like, he just ability. made a fucking steal. Like, you can kick his leg. Good job. You just broke your own shin. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Rockle, like, hurt his shin on the second kick. Um, it was it was crazy. I'm, it might have even been a clean kick, or it might have been checked. Either way, that's that's dumb. But Yormero, he's pretty hard to kick. He's incredibly composed, uh, so he wasn't going to react to the feints the way Costa did with, like, reaching out, parrying, giving ground. Yormero, he just stood there. When he wanted to stand there, he would stand there. And the counterpunching, because Izzy just couldn't, you know, he couldn't draw stuff out and go in. He could draw stuff out and draw stuff out more because Yo would just hit him when he went in a lot of the time. And Costa didn't have those tools. He just had the incredible physicality and, like, the general oh, I'm bricked up, I can hit this guy, sort of thing. It's just that his method of hitting people was very different, and he went away from that uh, very, very quickly. Um, I, I agree with everything that you said. I think Adesanya is going to be very, very difficult for the rest of the division to handle. Uh, Costa, at the very, I said before the fight, Costa is like an archetypically tough fight for Izzy in that you know he's a pressuring body hitter, where Izzy is someone who likes to lean a lot and move around a lot. And aside from that big you know archetype, versus archetype sort of fight. It could fall apart on any granular any granular level, and it really fell apart on every single granular level that you could possibly find. So after that, I'm not... The next potential contender is Jared Cannonier. Uh, Cannonier shouldn't beat Robert Whitaker, uh, but he might because uh, Whitaker has his own set of issues. In well, he has the of power of the deep state behind him. <laughs> Q-Anonier, Quananier. I don't, that, that's a good joke in text. That's not a good joke when you say it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't uh, work over voice. Dear Lord. Okay, but uh, uh, that's that's what I get for stealing a joke. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Cannoneer, he's, if he wins, he's like a, a dangerous fight for Izzy. 
but not necessarily like one where I'm going to be like, Kanir has a systematic way to win this fight, because um, he really doesn't. Uh, as for Costa, I mean, he's he's probably going to fight like Derek Brunson now, which is going to be, that's a fight they should make, actually. But, you know, I think Robert Whitaker would beat him. Uh, Kananier might actually kick his leg for free more than I thought he would uh, and, like, you know, punch him when he comes in. Like, there there are some real holes in what Paulo Costa does, and I think it's been covered up by a lot of guys kind of letting him do what he wants. And now that someone hasn't, I think people might just show a little bit more resistance. I think Kananier versus Costa would be a really cool fight. I'd like to see that. In response to the the crowd that that says Costa was that it wasn't that Costa fought the wrong fight that Izzy wasn't letting him getting going, um, I think that there's there's like a lot of people get the impression that um, if somebody is a better striker like a more technical skilled striker, there's like you hear the there's levels to this shit narrative a lot, and sure you can have somebody who's a lot better at striking than another person outclass the other guy just on a pure basis of skill but even if you're less skilled than the guy you're fighting being sharp in the right ways can close a gap of like a big gap in technical skills and i don't think costa was sharp in the right ways in this fight he tried to like we said he tried to to stay on the outside and he didn't really have a a sense of how his tactics were going to play into that kind of game I think I would have liked to see him try to enter off body shots more um, and use the, instead of just trying to to kick his body from range or to to close distance with his feet and kick, I would have liked to see him throw kicks behind punching combinations. And I think people get the impression, some people, that he was super scared of Adesanya's counterpunching. I'm not sure if he was, but I don't think he should have been. Adesanya is a, a solid counterpuncher, but he's not the kind of guy that throws really great simultaneous counters. He's never really had a big threat of just killing people when they enter. If you look at the Whitaker fight, Whitaker kind of entered for th- for free most of the time. His blitzes, he didn't get countered during the blitzes. He got countered when he tried to, to stay in the pocket after when he was out of position and extend those exchanges. I've never really thought Izzy is the greatest... Uh, at simultaneous counters, hitting guys when they enter. It's usually in extended exchanges that he's better at countering. Like we saw at the end, um, he kind of like, he swayed to his left and then baited a jab out of Costa, slipped inside that, and then caught him with a counter. That's the kind of stuff that Izzy's great at. But I don't think he's, he's not Conor McGregor. He's not going to slide back and murder you as soon as you close distance on him. So I think Costa not trying to come up with not really having those tactics in place to close distance hurt him. I would have liked to see more like weaving into the pocket, uh, entering off body shots, and more attempts to bait out the the leg kicks and counter them. Although Izzy's hands hand fighting preventing Costa from doing anything with his jab really hurt him there. Um, but yeah, I agree that during Costa's run to the title, he he kind of got a string of weird matchups. We didn't really get to see him against a great pocket boxer. So I do think there's avenues that somebody like Whitaker or Cannoneer could take to to beat him. I'd really like to see one of those fights next. But moving on. The fight site has partnered with Bovada, the trusted source for gaming entertainment since 2011, for hundreds of thousands of players, to provide users with up to $250 bonus for signing up. To accept this tremendous offer, click the link in our Twitter bio or click on the banner on our homepage to start playing today. Please bet responsibly.
Get your favorite shows and sporting events wherever you are with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN allows users to change their IP address, protect their privacy, and avoid over-the-top streaming services, a necessity for all combat sports fans. To order, click the banner on our homepage and use the number one trusted VPN today. ACA Absolute Championship Akhmat are our sponsors, Daddy Rov. Recently had one of the fights of the year. Abdulaziz Abdulvakabov fought Alexander Sarnavsky. And Sarnavsky's been he's been around forever. I think he's like he's only like thirty-one, surprisingly. He was one of the Bellator's token Russians a few years back. Um but he's he's a veteran. He's a very solid striker. He's never been quite the elite of the elite outside the on the regional circuit, mostly because his wrestling defense is kind of spotty. He's a decent takedown. Uh, he has decent takedown defense, but he's he kind of fails when when guys are dedicated wrestlers and start chaining. But he put on an incredible performance against Abdul Vakabov, even if I don't think he had much of an argument for winning. Uh, so, sir, um, what are your initial impressions of this fight? Uh, is it your fight of the year, or do you do you have a fight you like better than this? Mm, I mean, I could I could go either way between this one and uh, Max Holloway versus Volkanovski too. Um, it, I think they're very different sorts of fights, obviously, like there's, cause generally if you look at like fights of the year, there's like the regular favorites and there's like the hipster favorites and Holloway Volkanovsky, from what I've seen in the public, it's very much a hipster favorite. Cause it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't super violent, but it was incredibly deep. It was a very, very thoughtful fight where, uh, Abdul Vakhbar versus Sarnavsky was kind of a blend. Cause you could see a lot of what Sarnavsky was doing was just, it was a very, very solid technical performance from him, but it ended up just incredibly violent by the end of the fight. Uh, So I think I could go either way on that. Uh, There were a bunch of great fights this year uh, in the UFC, particularly in the month of June, but um, I could, I think I'd lead, I think I'd lean uh, Abdul Vahabal Sarnaski for now. Uh, There's still Gaethje Khabib to go, but as for the... uh, as for the details of the fight, it was a really interesting sort of slickster versus uh, smasher sort of matchup. Like, I think it was the kind of fight that we wanted from uh, Costa versus Adesanya. If Costa fought, like, the right fight and Adesanya was actually challenged a bit more, is, you know, you have one guy who's going to be very, very committed to forward pressure, jabbing the guy backwards uh, and, you know, smashing against the fence. And you have another guy who looked very, very good in terms of ring craft and combination punching in the pocket uh, who would spin him around a lot. And um, I wrote an article on this fight, so go read it if you haven't. But um, it, it was check incredible. out that article. It was fantastic. Thank you. But yeah, so essentially the gist of the fight was that uh, Abdul Vakhabov is. So we saw in the Vartanian rematch that Abdul Vakhabov is not necessarily the best ring cutter. He kind of has <laughs> a, a lot of uh, Calvin Cater in him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like. He, he wants to jab people back and get them standing still or conceding to exchanges, but when a guy just doesn't want to do that, uh, he's like, well, what do I do now? Um, he like but, automatically pivots to the left off his, that leaping jab every time and then is consistently surprised when they just kind of circle out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the way that he won this fight eventually was just like pure persistence. If you want to look at it that way, he kind of cormiates Sarnaski. But um, Sarnavsky did a very, very good job for as long as he was in the fight. Uh, lots of nice little pivoting left hooks to get off the fence, uh, pivoting jabs to like lead him into uh, uppercuts. Talking about Asanya, it was actually pretty reminiscent of the um, first Adesanya-Whitaker knockdown, where Adesanya would like, pivot with the left hook, let uh, 
Whitaker's rear hand just kind of like swing off in the opposite direction and crack him with the uppercut. Uh, Sarnaski did that a couple times on Abdul Vahabov where he'd like pivot with the jab or pivot with the left hook and like uh, Abdul Vahabov would just be like, what the hell just happened? And sometimes he'd hit him in the body with that same thing. There was a lot of body work in the fight. It was uh, it was a pretty great fight. And I think the thing that I liked the most about it was that Sarnaski actually accounted for the fact that he'd get tired later by just beating the crap out of uh, Abdul Aziz's body for like two whole rounds. And then it just didn't matter anyway. Like that's not something I generally love about a fight, but it was, uh, it, it was it was very very funny to me as someone who likes Abdul Vahabov a lot. Uh, it was um, it was the kind of fight where I wouldn't necessarily say Abdul Vahabov came out of it looking better. It, there were a lot of the things were exactly the same, but Sarnavsky came out looking very very good. Yeah, yeah, I was really impressed with Sarnavsky's performance, especially with his takedown defense. I thought that. He might give uh, Abdul Vakabov a little bit of trouble on the feet, but he'd be quickly taken down in dispatch, and AAA couldn't really take him down at all. Although it was, I was a little bit surprised he didn't commit to the wrestling as much as I expected. He kind of like he would try going for a single leg and then just kind of abandon it and go upper body when it didn't work instead of continuing to chain. But Sarnavsky's grip fighting was pretty on point in that fight for the most part, um, so he had a really tough time taking him down for the body work i was super impressed with that you rarely see body work in general of that level in mma but especially counters to the body sarnavsky started working a, a jab to the body early and employing consistent lateral movement to keep AAA from corralling him and abdul vakabov isn't really a pressure fighter like i think a lot of people think of him as this destroyer who's trying to come forward and pressure you he does his best work when guys are coming into him um his he usually closes distance behind a leaping jab and uses that to bait out counters. And then he'll proactively slip or duck off his jab, expecting guys to throw back at him and then counter that. So he's usually best. He's also a great counterpuncher himself, has an excellent cross counter that he finished Vartanian with. So his thing is usually um, he's best when guys come to him. Uh, he's great at countering an aggressive opponent and he's good in willing pocket exchanges, but he's always had trouble tracking down elusive outfighters. Especially because his arms are like, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to describe his body proportions and I'm not sure what words to use. He has the biggest torso to arm ratio in MMA. He is all it's neck and torso. It's and, the ape index. It's yeah. like 0.1. <laughs> Whatever part of the clay that God used to sculpt his, his torso, like 50% of that was supposed to go to his arms and he just fucked that up. But yeah. He so he has he basically has to use the leaping jab to close distance because his arm, he has T-Rex arms. Um, so he would, he would do that leaping jab and then try to bait out a counter. And instead of giving him what he wanted and swinging at the head and then opening up, opening himself up to Abdul Vakabov's counters, Sarnavsky would immediately counter to the body and pretty much every entry, he immediately threw that right hook or right uppercut to the body and AAA didn't really know how to deal with it at all. He was expecting the, he would do the leaping jab and then duck off of it thinking he's going to. Duck, uh, duck Sarnavsky's punch and then hit him back but every time that body counter came he would kind of freeze up and then Sarnavsky could get a couple more punches in and then pivot out he also Sarnavsky started using a, a right uppercut to the head to punish AAA's proactive slipping which I really liked um, as the fight went on Abdul Vakabov increasingly pursued the clinch he would shoot to back Tiger up to the fence and then once he was in the clinch with him on the fence. Sarnavsky didn't really have much answer to that. Uh, and as the fight went on, Sarnavsky, it was weird. Even though he was pounding the body, Sarnavsky was the one that slowed down late. I think part of that is because 
Abdul Vakabov is just a fucking tank. And part of it was because the, those body punches, while he was landing a lot clean and hard, they were a lot of them were kind of arm punchy. Like his elbow would come away from his ribs and he would like really have to force that in there. So I think those kind of took some out of him too. He was expending a lot of energy with the counter punching too. Like AAA would come in with a leaping jab and then Sarnowski would have to throw a big combination to counter that and then pivot out in order to freeze Abdul Vakabov so he could get out. And he was he was doing more volume work and he was throwing with a lot of power too so he eventually got tired and wasn't able to keep up that consistent the ring craft the constant pivoting and direction changes abdul vakaba also adjusted well he adjusted his pressure and instead of leaping in with the jab and immediately pivoting off pivoting off to his left he stopped leading with that leaping jab so much and would instead walk uh sarnavsky down more conservatively force him to back up and eating up space with feints rather than making those big movements that could be countered and pivoted away from. Um, and then as his movement slowed down, Sarnavsky's he would keep up the body counters, but instead of being able to, to throw that uppercut to the body, get off a couple punches to the head and then pivot out right away, he would start standing in place more often after the body shots and AAA would be able to counter back. The real turning point of the fight was at the end of the third round. Abdul Vakabov battered Sarnavsky in the clinch a little bit and scored repeated clean elbows. There was like this moment where he kind of figured out that if he leaps in with a jab, he was going to get countered, but he could close distance more, more subtly and just elbow the shit out of his face. He landed like three or four <laughs> stepping elbows in a row, and Tiger didn't know how to deal with that and kind of panicked, backed up to the cage, and then just got smashed. Um... Then later in the fight, Abdul Vakabov used the clinch more and more. He would shoot in on the hips in order to back Sarnavsky up to the cage and then climb up to the upper body and go to work there. He, he also started baiting and ducking under the counter left hook that Tiger was using a lot to score reactive clinch entries, which was nice. Round four was Abdul Vakabov's best round, and he kind of he battered Sarnavsky in the clinch for most of it. His clinch game is lovely. I love Abdul Vakabov's clinch game. He was using an underhook to control and switching between underhook on his right side and his left hand would often switch between the collar tie or cross face on the opposite side when he wanted to land strikes and he would he'd use that as a base to knee and elbow out of. He'd switch to a wrist control or an inside bicep frame to land elbows to. He did a lot of really great work in transition. He would use that double inside bicep frame with his hands on Sarnavsky's inside Sarnavsky's biceps controlling him. So if Sarnavsky tried to like swim under or grab his head, he could just follow it with his elbow and keep tracking to keep his arms out. And he'd use that as a base to he'd dig his head in, control the biceps, hit him in the body repeatedly, land little uppercuts from there, and get off massive elbows. The elbows in this fight from Abdul Vakavov were lovely. The fifth round was pretty competitive. Tiger, he got beat up in the fourth round and then kind of saved his energy for a, a big comeback. Um... Tiger did good work at range early, but Abdul Vakabov was over to, able to overwhelm him a little bit more and get him to the cage. The clinch work in that round was more competitive, and Tiger kind of figured out how to get off some offense. But his, his offense was mostly little knees, with, and he didn't really have his hips into them because his back was on the cage, whereas Abdul Vakabov was landing uh, clean, hard elbows. So it was a really close fight and a good performance from Tiger, but I don't think there's a great argument for him winning. I know a couple people scored that for Sarnavsky. 
Yeah, I mean, I can, I think you could, I could see Sarnavsky like getting the fight scored for him, but it would probably hinge more on round one than round five. Cause like yeah, round I one is a better argument for him winning round one than five. Yeah. Cause I mean, round, even round one, it wasn't, Abdul Habab landed like the best shot at distance. Like later in the round, it was like a big clean right hand. And then he walked into the clinch and landed at least one big elbow off that wrist control. So I think he landed the better shots of the, of the round. But I think you could make an argument that Sarnaski got one, two, three before kind of getting overwhelmed in four and five. But I think yep. it was a pretty solid one, four, five Abdul Bakhbov, uh card. I I agree on his clinch. I think it's it's a really really fun clinch because you could actually see Abdul Bakhbov like kind of baiting Sarnaski into like really really fearing the elbows in at distance. Because a lot of what uh, Abdul Bakhbov did in the clinch was he like. Uh, wrist control, and then when Sarnaski would, like, fight the grips, he would, like, kind of grab both wrists and turn it into, like, a high guard where he would just, like, step in elbow, basically, like, in the pocket. And in round four, there was this one moment where Sarnaski would, like, throw a counter, and then Abdullahaba would just, like, before he could pivot out, he'd just, like, grab the wrist. And then Sarnaski would cover up hard and, like, just stand in place because he was, like, petrified of the elbow, and Abdullahaba just jabbed him back and smashed him with the right hand. Like, he, he really picked up how the fight was going by round four and five. Uh, but it was... I think you could say it was a concerning fight for Abdulbakhabov in terms of like matchups at the top. Someone like Prime Eddie Alvarez would probably like beat him up badly, but um, it was. I, I didn't really change my mind on the matchups in terms of like the current uh, lightweight scene. I think he'd still be a pretty bad matchup for someone like Nurmagomedov, who would probably try to walk into him and jab him and wouldn't be nearly as mobile as Sarnaski and a bunch of guys uh, in at lightweight around the world who would really, really struggle with Abdul Bahabal's clinch game and probably even his takedowns because Sarnaski was more diligent at uh, fighting grips and keeping his balance than someone like Dustin Poirier would. Uh, and Abdul Bahabal's top game is really, really, really nasty. Uh, he got Ali Bagoff to quit off like a minute on top. So, I mean, making Ali Bagoff quit isn't super impressive in, in retrospect. But, uh, <laughs> he, he really beat Ali Bagoff up from on top. So it was, Abdul Bahabal didn't really get like the best fight that he could in this fight, but he still won it, and I think that's something reasonably valuable. Yeah, uh, in regards to the wrestling, it did change my opinion on how we do against Poye, because I thought he'd be able to hit takedowns to buy time on the feet against Poye. After the Sarnavsky fight, though, uh, I, I've seen like Sarnavsky lose to wrestlers a lot, and some of them weren't the greatest wrestlers. He did do a decent job of grip fighting in this fight, but I still don't think his, his chain wrestling is there at all. So I think I do have some questions about Abdul Bakabov's offensive wrestling after this. It's possible that Sarnavsky's improved that a lot, but this late into his career after consistently struggling with wrestlers, I'm not too sure about. Um, with his back to his clinch game for a little bit, I, I really love how he's able to to kind of control guys in unfavorable positions. Like a lot of a lot of people, a lot of clinch fighters will get guys to the cage, start trying to settle into the clinch, and then before they're able to really establish anything, the guy breaks off and then they have to track him down again and go through all that work. And you can only have that happen like once or twice in a round unless you can keep him on the cage for a long time. Uh, it's really hard to get guys back there, especially in short five-minute rounds. But Abdul Vakabov is really great at keeping guys on the cage. He's super strong and he uses... Not only like underhooks, uh, collar ties, and stuff like that, but he'll even use disadvantages, disadvantageous positions really well to control guys. Like if somebody is sneaking around him with an underhook, 
he'll be able to like clamp a wizard down and then just kind of square his hips up to them and walk them back into the cage. He redirects with collar ties really well. So it's super difficult to get off the cage when he's controlling you there. Um, his work in transition was excellent too. He was using the the takedowns to get Sardavsky thinking about grip fighting, then coming up to to upper body positions. And because Sarnavsky was still looking at the takedown, he would get inside position and be able to control him from there. And he mixed his his um, positional clinch grappling with his striking really well. The He would use that inside bicep frame to elbow off of, and he used Sarnavsky's reactions to the strikes to improve his position. So like when Sarnavsky would pummel in, he'd try to pummel in. He would control a wrist, elbow him, and then... Sarnavsky would like kind of shell up for a minute and cover his face, and he'd use that to get an underhook. I was super impressed with Abdul Vakabov's clinch game. I think this is the this fight's probably the best showcase of just how good his clinch is. I would really love to see him in the UFC. I agree that the fight was a little bit concerning for him. He's getting up there in age, and I'm not sure how much he has left. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily past his prime at this point, but he's definitely getting there. I think he's been fighting for about 10 years, so I honestly wouldn't be expect I wouldn't expect him, him Bogov or um, Vartanian, unfortunately, to be at the top of their games for too much longer. So it's really time to shit or get off the pot for the UFC. And of course, as we know, there's no hope for that ever happening, which makes me very sad. Yeah, I mean, there, there's apparently some hope for Vartanian, but he's also apparently going to. If there's any hope, it's that they uh, <laughs> they put him against, him against a massive, Yeah. A huge welterweight, middleweight, who's going to try to wrestle him as much as he can, <laughs> which is, uh, those are not fun times. Hamza but... will like throw him around by being a, a light heavyweight fighting a lightweight, and then Dana will be like, the, the kid just didn't want to fight. He can go back to Russia. Yeah, that'll that'll suck. And I mean, I I, I kind of have no doubt that Bartanian will have like some cool moments because as much as uh, Hamza has been bagoffing people, he is not Ali Bagoff, but. That that would just be a gross fight, it's and I bigger than Ali Bogov. Yeah, I have no doubt that that fight would be uh, incredibly saddening for all four of us who care about Edward Vartanian. Fortunately, so, Dana doesn't even know who Vartanian is, and had never had any intention of signing him to fight Hamzat. Yeah, I mean that's fortunate for Hamzat. No, not really. I want to I want to <laughs> believe in Vartanian, but uh, anyway, yeah, I think Abdul Bahabal, I don't think he's ever going to leave ACA. Like the the time has passed, and he's I think he's too much of a uh, Katerov loyalist, which is what I've heard. So yeah. um, that that sucks. But hopefully some UFC fighters get cut for like unfavorable political opinions, and they end up in ACA. <laughs> so then AAA can just like you know struggle with them for a bit, and then just walk them down and cross counter them to death. So yeah, I mean I think that's it, it was a very fun fight, even if it wasn't like super super complex the way Max Volk was, where you could see like both guys making a ton of adjustments and like the micro level to each other. Mm-hmm. It was Sarnaski doing his thing for a lot, doing it incredibly well considering the, the circumstances, and Abdul Vahabov just being you know completely indestructible, completely undeterred by anything that Sarnaski did and uh, figuring the fight out. Yeah, awesome fight. I I'm so glad it happened. One of my favorite fights this year, either if it's not my favorite, it's definitely right behind Max and Volkanovski. And since Leon Edwards isn't fighting this year, I doubt any fight will eclipse them. <laughs> yep. As we know, Leon Edwards, the most exciting fighter in MMA. You know, Triple A versus Leon Edwards in the clinch, if they were at size parity, would be the shit. God, I would. <laughs> MMA really has a lack of really good clinch striker versus clinch striker matchups. 
And usually when we do get a great clinch matchup, it's like a wrestler against a striker, which is a really interesting dynamic, and I like it. Like fights like Leon Edwards and Usman or RDA against Covington are cool to watch, but it'd be really, really fun to see some elite clinch fighters in MMA go at it in the clinch. We don't get that too often. I mean, even something like uh, Prime RDA versus Abdul Bakhmov would be really, really sick, like everywhere. That would be an amazing fight. Because you have the southpaw thing with RDA where you can't just cross-counter him and the, the body attack, kind of. But you also have like a really competitive clinch and Abdul Bakhmov kind of trying to wrestle him, maybe. RDA would go at him, too, and they'd get in a lot of exchanges. Man, now you're making me sad that we're never going to see guys like Abdul Bakhmov fight people anybody's heard of. I mean, ACA has enough great people. No one's ever... I mean, do they? Artem Resnikov's the next contender. Let's hold off on that. Um, yeah, we're not talking about the Ryzov fight, but Resnikov didn't win that. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was bad. Robert. Hyperfly yeah. was founded on the idea to commit itself to the athlete with the highest quality gear to serve that need, be it in jiu-jitsu or anything else. With a wide amount of gis, no gi gear, and leisure wear... Hyperfly is the one-stop shop for every grappler's needs. To order, click on the banner on the Fight Site homepage, as it helps us continue to produce great content. Moving on to K1. So, I, I wrote sure I'm into discussing the K1 fights with me. He doesn't watch much kickboxing, so I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna let him go first and laugh at him if he has bad opinions. That's a good idea. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot more chance of you building off what I say than the opposite. So, uh, let's see. So, the main event was Rukia Ampo against Hideaki Yamazaki. They fought once before a year or two ago, I think, and Ampo KO'd him with a head kick. That did not happen this time. <laughs> Yamazaki just stormed him in round one. Uh, he didn't do too much for like a minute or two, and then just bounced in with a, a jab and a right hook behind the ear, knocked him down. Then as soon as Ampo got up, he got knocked the fuck out with a massive left hook. Not really too much to take from that fight. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, Yamazaki had some success jabbing in, like, twice. And then uh, Ampo tried to, like, flying knee him on the counter as soon as he was knocked down, which was kind of... Uh, quest. I mean, I don't know if it was questionable, because, like, he was kind of in Hail Mary mode at that point. But yeah, that left hook was nasty. It looked like he got sniped. So... Uh... That, that was cool. I mean, good introduction to kickboxing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first fight you watched? I mean, I watched some of uh, Doombay since Danny wrote the article on him. But uh, K1, this is actually the first one. You never got around to watching Gregorian lose four times to Sidichai before eventually beating him? Oh, I watched the clips. I was I was talking about full... I mean, I guess this was kind of a clip that was disguised as a full fight. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, after I guess the second fight I watched was the first full fight. So that was the the main event. That was for the 65-kilogram title. Yamazaki is now the champion after dispatching Ampo in like two and a half seconds. Um, <laughs> Yuki Igawa fought Tatsuya Tsubakihara. Yeah, Tatsuya Tsubakihara. I'm a big Igawa fan, so this fight made me sad. I wasn't too, too familiar with Tsubakihara coming into this fight, but he impressed me a lot. Uh, what were your impressions of the fight, Serum? I know you have a little bit of familiarity with Igawa, because I wrote that article on him. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty much all the familiarity I had with anyone on this card. Um, <laughs> Igawa, 
uh, he looked really interesting to me in that article, and if I ever got around to watching kickboxing earlier, I would have probably enjoyed him a lot. Uh, you could see some of the stuff that uh, you mentioned in the article with his like really impressive swarming combinations. Uh, there was a cool moment in, I think, near the end of round one, where uh, Subaki Hara got stuck on the ropes, and he got hit with like a double left hook um, to the body and to the head, which was straight out of the Abdul Bakhbaf playbook, if I may plug him once more. But... Um, yeah, I mean, in general, it was a very disciplined performance from Subaki Hara. He kept the exchanges incredibly short. Uh, he linked, well, when there were exchanges, he linked the uh, teep and the jab very well, and Igawa didn't really seem to have much of an answer to it. Um, there was a point in round three where uh, Subaki Hara would just feint the teep, and Igawa would have to stop because he didn't want to have his advance broken by a hard teep again. Um, he, his ring craft looked very good. He did a nice job uh, pivoting off when there were exchanges. Uh, in general, Igawa couldn't really get to the spots that he wants to be in, which are those uneven exchanges where guys are just covering up against the ropes. Um, he, he needs an answer to the teep, and I think... I mean, I don't know how uh, good Tsubaki Hara is in context. I think he looked very good, but uh, I don't have any context as to kickboxing. But he looked... Uh, if other guys can do that, then Igawa might be in trouble in terms of, you know, struggling to close the distance on strong outfighters and guys who keep the... It's kind of like a... A stylistic barrier that I think Igawa can like overcome eventually, but uh, I don't know how deep into his career he is or how much of a finished product he is. He has a good game, but uh, this was kind of a struggle for him. Yeah, I'm absolutely with all that. Fuck you, Saram. You were supposed to have bad opinions so I could mock them. <laughs> but no, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Igawa, Igawa is a really interesting pressure fighter because he's not like he's not a Paulo Costa guy that's gonna well. After the Izzy fight, maybe he is a Paulo Costa guy, but he's not the—he's <laughs> not the kind of fighter who's gonna—he's not a tank like Justin Gaethje, Paulo Costa. He's not gonna walk forward, tank all your offense, put you on the ropes, and just batter you. He's a lot more patient. Um, hence, I named my article on him the patient pressure of Yuki Igawa. So there you go. Uh, but he does a lot of—he backs guys up not with by like putting huge combinations on them or threatening them with big power punches. He does a lot of lead leg harassment, like light little kicks with his lead leg to force guys to give up ground. Uh, he'll faint them back to the ropes and then occupy the space. But it's only once guys are on the ropes that he does his big power punching and swarming. And Tsukaki Bara, Tsubaki Hara, uh, frustrated that a lot with his, his ring craft and his outfighting. Tsubaki Hara's footwork and ring craft look excellent. Uh, he controlled most of the fight by the his pivots, his lateral movement, his and some nice counter punches when Igawa tried to close distance. He was constantly changing directions and using lateral movement to to frustrate Igawa's attempts to corral him. And because Igawa doesn't do a lot of his work in open space and usually reserves his his swarming for when guys are on the ropes, Subakihara would be able to to land some shots at range, teep him off, and then Igawa would have to make up all that distance again, and he'd already be fighting from a deficit. So he wasn't really able to get to any of his his positions that would ensure victory. Um, he consistently, Subaki Hara, consistently broke the line of attack when he, Igawa entered, countering and pivoting his entries, countering his entries and pivoting off back into the center. He landed some really nice short counter right hands when Igawa was swarming on him too. He would use the linear strikes really well to intercept Igawa before he got to the ropes, the teeps, uh, jabs, and some really nice stepping knees. And yeah, I totally agree with what you said, that Igawa has an issue dealing with that, especially because he needs his man on the ropes before he can really go to work. And those the jabs, knees, and teeps really frustrated his attempts to close distance and back Subaki Hara up. 
Igawa had some success with body-head combinations, but he was largely outmaneuvered and couldn't consistently force Tsubakihara into the positions that he needed to work those. Um, so yeah, I was really sad because I love Igawa, but I was really impressed with Tsubakihara as well. Igawa's really young. Uh, I think he's been fighting for quite a while, but he's only, let me see, he's only like 22 years old. And he's only recently kind of emerged as a top fighter. So he definitely has a lot of time to patch up his weaknesses. He definitely needs a, a more consistent way to deal with those linear strikes. And I'd like to see him do more work at range. Um, usually his best work at range is counters when guys open up. He'll kind of he'll slowly and patiently work him back to the ropes. And if they lash out and try to hit him hard before he gets there, he'll slip and counter. But... Subakihara wasn't committing to hard punches to the head. He was just using that light little jab to draw out counters and then avoid them. And then he'd do his, his big work with the knees and teeps up the middle. And Igawa didn't really have a consistent counter for that. So I'd like to see him do a little bit more offensive work at range um, when he's not able to, to back guys up. And it'll help if he can do that. It'll likely help him get guys to the cage as well. And he needs an answer to better address those, those linear strikes like you mentioned. Our next fight was Koya Urabi versus Yudo Shinohara. I'm not super familiar with Shinohara, but Koya Urabi has been a top fighter for quite a while. So what did you think of this one, Sura? Uh First of all, I'm glad you pronounced it before I did. Cause, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I enjoyed the, I don't know why this was an extra round, because it seemed like a very clear yeah. uh, Urabi decision at the end. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, Urabi is, uh, from what I saw, he was a quite dimensional southpaw. He did some cool stuff with uh, the southpaw double attack to the body, but he's also a very committed southpaw jabber, and he did some cool stuff with uh, drawing out uh, Shinohara's counters and jabbing him, like, multiple times. The first knockdown was, he's, like, set a rhythm with the southpaw jab in the first round, and he kind of hooked around it to land the left hand uh, at the beginning of the second, which was pretty cool. Uh, Yorabi straight up butchered his body near the end of the fight. Uh, he Lots of straights to the body and, like, long hooks sometimes paired with the body kick. Uh, so, I mean, it was kind of a beatdown by the end, and then the extra round, like, I think both guys kind of knew it was completely useless, so Yurabi just, you know, he didn't really, like, destroy him in that round, he just yeah. kind of jabbed him and uh, sat back, because he'd already done all the damage. Uh, I'm not really familiar with the scoring criteria in K1, I figure it's like Muay Thai, where it doesn't make much sense to people who don't watch it based on this, uh, but it was, um, it was a fun fight, I mean, it was a fun beatdown, I think. Uh, watching this kind of body work is always fun. I guess that's the theme of the episode, and uh, Yorabi's pretty good at it. Yeah, K1 loves their extra rounds. Uh, if you want to see perhaps the most ridiculous example of that, watch the first Buka versus Masato fight. Buka just kicks the entire shit out of him, just <laughs> drubs him for the whole fight, absolutely demolishes him. Um, he basically can't stand at the end of it, they, they have to like give him smelling salts, slap him in the face a couple times, <laughs> inject him with meth, and then send him out for the extra round to get the shit beaten out of him even more. Yeah, that's a K1 thing. But yeah, it was a cool fight. Um, like I said, not too familiar with Shinohara, and he didn't look that great here, but he did land a, a couple good shots. Urabi mostly worked with the, the softball double attack, landed the one-twos and his, his big body kick. Um, he, he would repeatedly use those one one two combinations and three twos with kind of an off rhythm straight he would collapse into the rear straight so it came really quick on like a half beat so instead of coming like one two his his straight and then his jab and then straight would come like one two 
super fast, so as soon as Shinohara was reacting to the jab, he'd immediately get pelted with the straight. He dropped him with that in round two. Um, he was also using a really nice southpaw jab that I liked a lot. He was keeping a thudding jab in Shinohara's face to, to keep him in place at range and keep him occupied for his bigger power punches. Shinohara dropped Urabi in round three by slipping inside one of those jabs and throwing a right hook, though it looked like a bit of a slip to me. I'm not sure if that was really a knockdown. And then the rest of the round, Koya just kicked the entire shit out of him, uh, just brutalized his body with big, big body kicks and left body hooks. Um, in the extra, yeah, I don't know why the extra round happened, and Urabi just kind of controlled him, just picked him apart with jabs and kicks. Instead of like throwing those big committed jabs like he was before, he started doing uh, lighter trip hammer jabs, just throwing them directly out of his guard and messing up Shinohara's rhythm with that. So yeah, that was a fun fight. Not sure why the extra round happened, but it was a cool beatdown. Fun fun trivia fact, since I know you're not too familiar with him. Koya Urabi has a brother, Hirotaka Urabi. They, they're in the same division, and they're both kickboxers, and they fought each other twice. So whenever <laughs> That's cool. whenever you want like MMA fighters to fight and people are like, oh, but they're in the same camp, fuck you. These guys are brothers, and they beat the shit out of each other. Hirotaka knocked him out with a knee in their last fight. Are they still friends? Like Thanksgiving dinner's got to suck. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that. Like, th- their mom was there too, watching the fight. I think. Oh no! Imagine that, like seeing your son just <laughs> beat the shit out of each other. Loser gets written out of the will. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> then finally, uh, the last fight I want to talk about here is Tayo Asahisa against Hiroki. Tayo Asahisa. Not, I was going to say it was a really interesting prospect, one of the most interesting in kickboxing, but he's not really a prospect anymore. He's already beaten some elite fighters. Uh, and he has a really cool kind of karate style. He's very Kyokushin, but he, he weaves it with boxing. He weaves it together with boxing really well. He does a lot of... He does like the, the typical Kyokushin chambered kicks on the outside, the stepping knees and everything. And then when guys try to fight him on the inside, he's like shifting, taking angles, moving his head, bobbing and weaving and everything. It's fun to watch. What did you think of Asahisa here? Uh, I don't know. Like, it was a very, very aggressive fight from both. Uh, her, I think Hiroki dropped him with like a step-in knee in first in the first round. Um, it was That was actually a pretty cool one. I think he uh, dropped him into another one like uh, a few seconds later. So Hiroki didn't look like bad, even though I didn't know anything about him and he was kind of the fodder in this one. I, I feel like that's what only the first name means it's like the opposite of how madonna is madonna it's like if you only have one name then you're kind of interchangeable but um <laughs> it's a Tayo japanese Asa- thing <laughs> all their people have one name rena um kid etc oh, and kid have a last name yeah but nobody said it It was just kid oh, that's, that's how like when you see their names stylized they just they put them as like rena takeru kid rather than takeru sagawa uh, yeah that makes sense uh, but, yeah, Tayo, he, oh, yeah, I mean, both guys kind of, there were a lot of points where both guys just kind of swung in the pocket and, like, Asahisa kind of overwhelmed him later in the fight. And then the ending of the fight where he would, like, he, like, threw a head kick out of the pocket, which was very, very weird. Uh, but it was it was fun to watch. Uh, Hiroki kind of just died with his eyes open. So uh, not, a, not a ton. It was a pretty short, very, very action-packed fight. Uh, didn't take as much away from it as I did from uh, Yurabi and uh, Tsubakihara. 
uh, about as much as I did from Yamazaki and Poe, because both were just very, very nasty knockouts. Uh, but, I mean, Asahisa looks fun. Uh, the karate style is often very frustrating, but he does it uh, pretty well since he can actually exist in the pocket. Yeah, most of Asahisa's are, his fights are like that. He's super aggressive and fun. He was out kicking Hiroki early, and then, like you said, Hiroki dropped him midway through the first round with that flying knee. And he swarmed Asahisa with punches to try to put him away. But Asahisa did a pretty good job keeping himself safe with his head movement and positioning in the pocket. Although Hiroki kept threatening knees to dissuade him from slipping. Once Tayo Asahisa got his bearings back, he did a lot of good work in the pocket himself early. He rocked Hiroki with a nice little split step straight. And then he, he like, uh, I'm not sure how to explain this without like showing, but... He, he had his weight kind of distributed evenly. Then he did, took like a little hop and pushed off his back foot to, to enter with the rear straight really quickly. And then as Hiroki was trying to react to that, just slipped a, a quick little um, lead hand punch inside that and rocked him with that. And then he finished him brutally in the second round. He landed a first, he landed a head kick as Hiroki threw like a spinning back his, fist and then swarmed him with punches for an eight count. After Hiroki got back up, Asahisa beat him up a bit more. And then finished him from a head with a head kick from inside. Uh, that's a, a really Kyokushin style thing. If you watch Kyokushin fights, they always fight really squared up because there's no punches to the head, so all their attacks are body punches or kicks. So they fight really square, really close range, and they get really good at throwing throwing kicks from almost chest to chest. If you watch guys like Masaki Nori, uh, Francisco Fio, Andy Hug, etc., they can bring those kicks up from really tight in close. So Asahisa, they were inside, and they were like glove to glove with a high guard. Asahisa pushed off, snuck his rear leg far back with a little hopping pivot that you see guys use to kick off the back foot and hit that hit a really tight right hook to head kick combination. The And the chambered kicking you see from Kyokushin guys lets them do that well too. If you have to like pop your hip through on a kick and um, like throw a, a full kick like you see a lot in Muay Thai, it's harder to get those up from close range, but with a chambered kick, you can kind of bring your knee almost up to your chest and then snap that, that leg out, and it, it allows you to, to get really tight kicks off from close quarters. I love Asahisa's style. He has the, the cool karate kicking on the outside. He has a really interesting front kick. He uses the front kick. It's super versatile. He, he'll use it to keep, to keep range and keep guys on the outside. But he, he also uses it almost as like a throwaway jab. Uh, he'll like kind of buzz it. He'll use like a buzzing front kick where he throws it non-committally and step in off of it. But he'll also use it to draw counters. Like he'll he'll throw a front kick that lands just a little bit short, expecting a guy to counter it. And then as soon as they throw back, he'll like shift forward off of it and land a counter punch. He'll do a, he'll like draw it up like he's about to front kick too and then snap it off into head kicks. It's those chambered kicks again. He can manipulate the path of that kick, make guys think he's going to throw a front kick and kick the head or transition to something else. And he'll, he does a lot of the, the feints that you see from uh, ties a lot with their teeps too, where he'll, he'll draw the leg up, make the guy think he's about to front kick, and then shift forward with punching combinations. Super fun to watch, and he's really young. I'm really excited for his future. Uh, I was going to talk yeah. about Muay Thai here too, but it's already like an hour, so I'll just give a, a <laughs> quick little thing on Sangmini and Taunchai. Sangmini, so I don't even know what Sangmini is now. He's pro- like Cafe Muay Thai or something. I fought <laughs> Taunchai, PK Sainchai on this Saturday, so yesterday. Um, 
they're they're one they were one and one going into this fight. Like I mentioned earlier, Taunchai won the first fight by kicking him up on the outside, countering Sangmini's kicks, and finishing him with a he knocked him down with a head kick and then finished him off with a teep to the face. And Sangmini won the second fight. The third fight was pretty back and forth at the beginning, but Taunchai increasingly took over as the fight went on. Uh, Sangmini opened up Taunchai with an elbow in the second round but didn't get too much else done. Uh, he was trying to crowd Talonchai and hurt him into his round kicks and punches like he did in the second fight, but Talonchai was threatening really strong counter punches to dissuade him. Talonchai dropped him in, I think, the first or second round as well with one of those counter punches. So Sangmini wasn't able to pressure as comfortably as he did in their second fight because he was having to deal with those stronger counter punches. Talonchai's boxing looked improved, which is uh, really encouraging for an eventual transition to kickboxing. His boxing defense looked good, too. He wouldn't let Sangmini establish his rear hand. His distance control was really good. He was preventing Sangmini from, from getting off his kicks by keeping, keeping him out of kicking range. Whenever Sangmini tried to step in, he would intercept him with a lead leg kick. He used uh, those little sweeping inside leg kicks you see a lot from Ties to, to knock Sangmini off his balance and prevent him from getting off any kicks. He was putting together some nice kicking combinations, too. Um, double, double tapping the lead leg inside leg kick and body kick so he'd throw the inside leg kick and then switch right into a body kick as Sangmini came forward and tried to counter and then once Taunchai established his hard counter punches he would feint them to to back Sangmini off and land kicks or knees by the fourth round Taunchai was pretty much controlling him um, he was interrupting his entries with counters or breaking his balance with that little inside leg kick and saying that he couldn't really get much done. It was a great performance from Taunchai. Uh, it was a really neat cap to their series as well, because you can see a lot of adjustments they made from fight to fight, which I talked about a little bit earlier with Sangmini punching off his kicks to throw off Taunchai's kick catching. And then Taunchai kind of responded to that by just avoiding letting Sangmini get in position to kick at all with those little inside leg kicks to break his balance, the counter punches and... Uh, fainting him off. T- Sangmini, at this point, I'm not sure why he's still fighting at 142. I know he said he wants to, his best weight is like 130, 137-ish, 138, and he doesn't want to fight so high, but it looks like the promoters are kind of making him fight fight up. Taunchai was quite a bit bigger than him, uh, and Taunchai cuts to that weight, whereas Sangmini had to gain a couple pounds. So I'd really like to see Sangmini fight someone a little bit closer to his own size. But either way, it was a great fight, well worth watching. And looks like we're about out of time, so I won't talk about too much more Thai, much more Muay Thai. I'll save that for the next <laughs> edition of the podcast. But definitely check out the Sangmini and Taunchai fight. Um, Suram, before we wrap this up, do you have anything to promote or shout out? Anything you're working on right now? Uh, um, so check out the uh, AAA Sarnath Key article where I kind of just wrote down all the stuff that I said here. Uh, but, you know, it, it has videos which kind of illustrate that better. Um, what I'm working on, I mean, the Whitaker Cannoneer fight is coming out soon. They're not coming. It's happening soon. And I'm working on something for that, but it's still in very early stages. Uh, other than that, not really. Uh, how about you, Ryan? I'm working on a Nathan Corbett video right now. Stay tuned for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um Otherwise, I haven't had too much time to write lately. Most of my stuff has been video work. Uh, But keep your eyes peeled for that Nathan Corbett video. 
and I'm going to try to get on a more consistent schedule for recording. So I'll be recapping the the week's action of Muay Thai from now on. I'll release it on a bi-weekly schedule, so every two weeks like I was before. And hopefully I won't get busy and have to take like three months off again. Anyways, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on, Sir M. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for letting me just completely bullshit about K1. <laughs> we'll, we'll mold you into a kickboxing fan in no time. Soon I'll have you on here talking, uh, saying names like saying me and Talon Chai. I can say those two names and none of the other ones, if that helps. And bows and knees. This is an art of boxing you would all love to learn. Suck them hard with your soul and then kick out and all. Ah.